Well, good morning again, as we will continue in our series out of 1 Peter this morning. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Verses 18 through 25, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2. Having already prayed, let me, let me start this sermon off with a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself in a difficult working environment as it related to your employment or working for a very difficult person? I think we all have. Maybe you found yourself under an employer or a supervisor for like those in the military where they failed to treat you well. They weren't fair in their supervision. They were always finding something wrong with your performance. They're really short on praise. An employer or supervisor that was unkind, unappreciative, maybe even abusive and never gave you the recognition for the work that you did. Or an employment situation where you feel that the environment that you work in is hostile towards Christianity and your faith, resulting in a lack of opportunities that others are afforded, or fair and equitable treatment. You ever been in a situation like that? I think we all have. The second question is, how did you respond during that situation? How are you responding now, if that's you? I want you to keep those two questions in mind as we progress through 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. You know, one of the major themes that you'll see within the Bible is submission to authority. Whether that authority is God Himself or of those appointed over you. Since the flesh is self-centered, self-serving, self-interested, self-focused, and self-gratifying, anything that prevents that from happening is met with rebellion. From the earliest records of God's Word, early in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world by which way? Rebellion. Man in his natural state is naturally rebellious. If you don't believe me, look at a two-year-old. They can't talk, they can't write, they really can't communicate well, but they will run from you when you tell them to come here. They will touch that thing you tell them not to touch. They will do the thing that you don't want them to do, and they know that you don't want them to do it. We're born into sin. At the heart of our own natural natural person is a state of rebellion. And so as we continue our series to 1 Peter with the theme that we are to live holy lives as we sojourn through an evil and hostile world, we will suffer. And within the next few chapters of Peter, we will see this sub-theme 
reveal itself. And so this week, we will look at part two of submission to authority. I gave part one two weeks ago, and in between we had a wonderful baptism, where we talked about previously submission to the state or the government that has been placed upon you or over you. And today we're going to talk about those who have been placed over us in a position of authority within our places of employment. So let's begin by verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good, and not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. You know, Peter starts by addressing to a certain group within this letter that was within the church, and those were servants. Now, the word used by Peter here was not necessarily the purest form of what we would understand as slavery, but what would be more in line with indentured servitude. Somebody who was either because of debt, had to be a servant or as a result of being sold. we got to remember that back in Peter's time, there was no middle class. There was ruling class. There was those in poverty, and in between were those who served. In fact, many scholars believe that many of the readers of Peter and Paul's letters were actually servants. And they had the ability and the freedoms to read and write and worship. In certain aspects. In fact, certain institutions had laws protecting indentured servants. So to make the comparison that the servanthood and the indentured servanthood and slavery in the time of Peter's writings is similar to the slavery we experienced here in this country, and they weren't. Now, there were certain, obviously, aspects during Peter's times where slaves' lives were pretty much worthless and at any point in time could be terminated if they displeased their master, but by and large, it wasn't similar to what we experienced in this country. And so now Peter's letter is examining how we as servants are to live for the Lord under such authority, under such servanthood. And those harsh masters or persecution as a result of being a believer in Christ. Now, obviously, we don't live in the time of Peter. We're not indentured servants. But we do serve earthly masters. And earthly masters are those who provide for the means by which we live. Those who provide by the means in which we live. And at times, we can face very difficult employers, very difficult employment situations that are very trying, resulting in some form of suffering and injustice. And it is how we deal with these difficult circumstances and people is what Peter's true message is within these next verses. And what does Peter have to say from the Lord in relationship to these situations and people? First, to be subject to your masters with all respect. With all respect. Again, the primary characteristic of a believer in Christ is submission to authority. And this includes those who we answer to who provide the means by which we live. 
The word respect is translated as fear. And we've covered this before. And the word, and there's different aspects of fear. And the aspect being used here means reverence. And if you recall, reverence means a deep respect. Not a surface respect, not a cursory respect, but a deep respect, which means you mean it when you give it. Comes from a pure heart with a pure motive. So we are to deeply respect our employers, our earthly masters. Why? Well, first, our earthly masters provide us the means of employment. They don't have to give you a job. Employment is not a moral right upon man. It's a privilege. But because we live in a world that's entitlement-focused, our perspective of employment is not one always of gratitude and thanks, but of entitlement and expectation. Sometimes this entitlement attitude leads to difficulties in our employments. I recall a lady that I interviewed not long ago who had received some disciplinary action early in her employment after questioning, she was just new on the job, months on the job. And after questioning her for several minutes, it revealed very shortly that in those few months, she became very critical of management on how they were doing things. And she told them so. Well, obviously, they didn't really appreciate that. So she was issued some disciplinary action and what they call now coaching I think in the military it's called being chewed out. But anyway, we use proper terms now. I just want to coach you. Um, but they counseled her. They've written her up. And that was the reason why I was interviewing her. Because of what disciplinary action she received. Now, as I was talking to her, it was very evident that she had a very entitlement attitude. She just got this great job with great opportunity, with great pay, and within months, she was critical of it. I noticed it. She was oblivious to it. She had done that job before with another company, so she knew how it was supposed to be done. They didn't warm up to her. And she didn't understand why she received that disciplinary action. You know, sometimes we could be oblivious to how we deal with situations because of our own pride. We blind ourselves. We deceive ourselves that we're right, they're wrong. But what does God's Word admonish us to do in situations like that? We're to do all things without grumbling and questioning. You know, when I was first taught in the military is you follow orders, right? And if you don't like the order I give you, as long as it's lawful, then come back and talk to me about how we should have better approached that. Don't question it at the time I give the order. We can talk about it later. I never forgot that. 
And so we should always do everything without grumbling and complaining and murmuring. Secondly, the reason why we're supposed to respect our bosses is because they provide the means by which we live. We are compensated for the work we do. That is by law. Now, some of us would like to be compensated a little bit more. I can understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. We should always try to improve our life. But we should be first thankful for what we do receive. Because we know the Bible says that the laborer deserves his wages. God wants you to earn a living. He doesn't want you to be a burden on anybody else, not even the government. But he wants you to also understand who's given that to you. And that brings us to the third reason why we are to respect. Because even our employment is from God. In Romans, it says, For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. Not some things. Not just church things. Not just theological things, all things. And to him be for the glory. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Here's where sometimes we have a disconnect, right? Right? Because we don't always combine our employment with our faith. We don't always see that our employment is being from God as well as everything else that we receive. Look, every job that you've had, every compensation you have received has come by way of the Lord. Everyone. Every promotion I ever had in the Air Force had come by way of the Lord. And if I told you some stories about how I was promoted and the jobs that I have received, you would know that was purely a God thing. God knows exactly where we need to be employed. And God provides us with that living. And that's why we're supposed to deeply respect our employers. Because God has placed them over us. I know that's hard sometimes, especially with a difficult boss, to believe. But it's true. You know, a true test of a Christian's character is not respecting a good master but respecting the not-so-good master. We've all had them. Bosses that are overbearing. Bosses that are short-tempered, right? Bosses that are intolerant of mistakes and inconsistent in their leadership. And when we have bosses like this, it's easy to justify behavior that is far from respectful just like the lady I mentioned earlier. And it is easy to lose focus as to why we are to respect our employers. Listen to what God's Word says in Timothy. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor. Why? Why? Why should we tolerate incompetence? Why should we tolerate rude behavior? Why should we tolerate a boss who is harsh and not just and not fair and doesn't reward us for the work that we do? The second half of that verse 
says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. It's about Him. It's always about Him. Look, we do, all that we do is for the glory of God, and that as we sojourn through this life, and the world, and although we need employment as a means of living, don't forget that it's about Him that you are living. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back. For the wrong that he has done. And there is no partiality. Look. We will always have bosses. In fact, that's not the issue. The real issue is, whom do you really work for? It's for the Lord. Not for you. Not for those bosses. I used to tell my troops all the time when when we'd have chief master sergeants come in and talk to our troops and they would say, you need to do this one for the squadron, you need to do this one, right? And the troops would just look at them like, why? We don't get anything in return. No, you need to do it for the Lord first. Because if you put all you have in pleasing the Lord in any facet of your life, we're coming up on Valentine's Day tomorrow, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, you will love your wife the way she needs to be loved. You will love your husband the way he needs to be loved. It all begins with the Lord in everything that we do. Peter continues. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? You endure it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so now Peter identifies how we are to work under an unjust master. First Peter says, it is a gracious thing. I don't know if you're like me. When I read Scripture, I go, what does that mean? Well, this phrase means it needs to be taken in the concept of God protecting and helping you with favor. God is protecting and helping you with favor in the midst of your suffering situation. You know, sometimes when we find ourselves in difficult situations like I'm describing, we feel God's absent. God's not active. God's not involved. I'm going to have to fix this myself. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school class when it came to Abraham. I guess I've just, God hasn't given us a kid, so we'll do what the custom of the day is. And I'll go into my servant, and well, it has had a dramatic effect ever since. You see, we may feel, God, you don't understand what's going on here. As if he's blind to your circumstances. He knows everything about it. God's fully aware. God's fully in control. He will preserve His saints. He will bless them for them, for they 
for those who endure. Listen. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's why Job's story is so powerful. So when we endure and we persevere, we will receive the blessings of the Lord. Additionally, Peter uses the phrase, when mindful of God. Again, another one of those phrases. What does that mean? It means to be prompted by a conscious awareness of God's presence and His will in the given situation you face. It means to be consciously conscious of God in the situation you're facing. Sometimes, again, we, we find ourselves in these difficult situations. We tend to focus on the circumstances that we're faced with and not God. But God's Word says that we're to do all things for the glory, and when we, are, we are also to be conscious of God at all times in our circumstances. In other words, we need to stop and keep our minds focused on God as we go through this. Because when we don't do that, we are going to react instinctively by our old nature. That's what's going to come out. That's how we are going to respond. Our thoughts, our actions, our speech will not be of God if we don't maintain the consciousness of God when we go through these situations. James. Oh, I missed James. All right, that's all right. Know this, my beloved. This is out of James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, for some of you, when you deal with difficult situations, you're, you may be a, a bit more passive than most. You just kind of regress into your shell. You don't want to really be aggressive. You don't want to deal with confrontation. And that, and that. But a lot of times what happens... That pride comes up, and it says, oh, no, you didn't. You're not going to treat me that way. You're not going to talk to me that way. Brothers and sisters, if you come with that line of thought, I guarantee you what's going to come out next is not of God. Retaliation or responding in kind is of the flesh. It's not of the Lord. The world says... You do not have to take that. You're being wronged. You need to stand up for yourself. You need to do something. And in some cases, there are proper channels that are afforded to you in employments where you could go to HR, make a file, make a complaint because your rights have been violated. And praise God, we live in a country that has that opportunity. But even then, we are to do that with grace, with peace. But if we respond in like manner as to how we're treated, it's not going to bring about the righteousness of God. And the suffering that you will face as a result of your actions will not bring forth the grace of God in your situation. Additionally, when we do good and suffer, it is a testimony, again, of the character of Christ. 
and is a powerful testimony to your employer. Never lose sight of the fact that God may place you in a difficult circumstance to reach difficult people. Remember, you're sojourning through this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are a missionary for Christ. And if God places you in a difficult employment situation under a difficult boss, it's no different than a missionary going to a closed country where they persecute Christians. Because that's where God wants you to be. Therefore, never allow your pride or your sense of entitlement or your rebellious spirit destroy the very work God is trying to do through you. Peter continues in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example as to how you might follow in his steps. God desires us to live a Christ-exemplified life in every aspect of our life. Listen to what Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is our call. To know him, to make him known, and to exemplify him in every way in our life, and that includes when we suffer. Christ suffered because he brought light into a dark world and brought forth the work of redemption by his atoning sacrifice. You think that was met with open arms? We're going to learn in Matthew. No, it wasn't. He brought light. At every step of the way, he was challenged. He was resisted. He was labeled. He was slandered. He was falsely accused, falsely arrested, beaten, and suffered unto death on the cross. Apart from understanding Christ's work by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, one could look at that as one of the greatest injustices ever imposed on a man. So then why does God... I'm sorry, I, I missed a step here. Look at John chapter 15. If the world hates you, this is Jesus' words, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. That's the first sign as to how you're living. Because they see you as his own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And as a result, we will suffer. And again, Paul writes in Philippians, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is as much a part of a being a believer in Christ as blessings are. 
Suffering in the sense Paul and Peter addresses means to undergo evils or to be afflicted by those evils. And we live in an evil world. So then why does God, who is absolutely sovereign, loving, merciful, gracious, why does He allow us to suffer? Why doesn't He just put His righteous right hand and say, "Uh uh-uh, not them? Sometimes He does, for His good and perfect will. But by and large, why does He allow us to suffer? Well, we need to go back where we covered in chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, So that by the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering for being a believer in Christ purifies our faith and dependency on Him for His glory. And we have been called to suffer, just as our Lord suffered. Although our suffering does not result in any atonement at all for any one of our sin, it does point to the person in Jesus Christ who did atone for our sins. That's who we are pointing to in our suffering. Although our suffering does not result in any atonement for our own sin, it points to the person in Jesus Christ who did atone for our sins. Peter continues, verse 22 through 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter now reveals the characteristic of Christ to be exemplified when we face suffering. First, Jesus was always without sin. Jesus was perfect. We're not. We were born into sin. We succumbed to sin. And we gave in to His desires. We live in sin. And even though our sin has been atoned for and forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, we still have the propensity to sin. I wish it wasn't so. When I hear people say that we're sinners, I'm just a sinner. In the context of excusing behavior, it rubs me wrong. Because it comes off as a concession. As a lack of fight. Lack of discipline. As if they had no control over their actions. As if they'll never change. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, as a Stoic would say. Brothers and sisters, when we committed our lives to Christ, we also committed to resisting sin, resisting the flesh. It is to be an unacceptable thing in the life of a believer to harbor, to justify, and excuse sin in our life. Sin is abhorrent to God, and we need to receive it in the same way. Listen, forgiveness is there when we fall. We know that, 1 John 1, 9. We know that. But we must walk in a manner that prevents us from falling. 
How many of you would walk on a sidewalk, not look down, and not see all the tripping hazards? Sin doesn't come up and surprise you. It's right there. We need to walk in a manner that prevents us from falling. Jesus never responded in any manner that brought forth dishonor to God the Father. Not once. Take another look at this verse. When I asked at the beginning of this sermon about having a difficult boss and how you responded, did you respond in the manner in which Jesus does not? Did you become angry at your boss and sin? Were your words dishonest or deceitful and not seasoned with the gospel? Did you threaten your boss or make ultimatums or commit a seditious act, which means undermine his authority or her authority against her or him? These are all acceptable and justifiable responses in the world. I've seen them. You've seen them. Maybe we've even done some of them. This is not how we're supposed to act. This is not the example we are to follow. For we, for if we did this, or we are doing it, we're not demonstrating the righteousness of Christ. And we will not receive the grace from the Lord in that situation. And what gives us the ability to do this? What gives us the ability to act in a righteous way? To endure the suffering that brings glory to God? It's Christ. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. You can't live unto righteousness in your own power. You can't live unto righteousness without placing your faith in Christ, nor would you want to. You'd be all about the flesh. We're able to do it because of Christ. Christ atoned for our sins. And as a result, we have been forgiven. We have been freed. We have been, the shackles are off. We are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness and empowered to live that life. Listen, I, I want to just walk over to Romans. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I know it's a little lengthy, but I think it really makes a good point here. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in the resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. We have been freed from the control and the desire 
of sin. Oh yeah, it'll, it'll present itself. It'll entice you. It'll want you to come over and play. We no longer have to follow the path of least resistance because that's what sin is. It's the path of least resistance in relationship to our flesh. We no longer have to yield to self-righteousness. We no longer have to yield to self-motivated desires, prideful self-interests. We don't have to respond in kind to those who are harsh to us or because of a situation in which we suffer. We have a choice. We have a choice. Do we yield to the power of Christ in us to do the righteous thing and follow the example of Christ? Or do we do what comes naturally in our flesh? Can I say something to you? How you act, how you respond, is based more on the choices you make versus the circumstances you face. A circumstance doesn't make you choose. You choose. And there's two choices. Verse 24, continuing the second part of it. By these wounds we have been healed. We, taught, we just heard that. We just sang that. Sin has a dramatic effect on us, and it has caused deep wounds within our minds, within our spirit, and our soul, and through Christ and His suffering, we have been healed. Now notice he says, not, he didn't say can be healed. He says, have been healed. It's free. It's done. It's complete. There's nothing you need to do. God offers us healing in the wounds that we have suffered as a result of sin, either from ourselves, that we've done to ourselves, or what others have done to us. Now, why is that important to understand? Why does Peter put that in there? It seems like he's going in a different theological train of thought. No, because guess what? The wounds that we suffered at the hands of our own sin or the wounds suffered by the hands of others have a dramatic effect on how we interact with other people. Remember that lady I was talking about? I could tell that this lady had deep wounds of rejection. Deep wounds of not being validated. Deep wounds of being hurt. Deep wounds from authority. And she didn't have a lot of respect for it. You know, when we come to Christ, we're all broken. We all come to this relationship in Christ broken. And many of us have deep wounds that need healing. Wounds that cause us to act in a certain way. Wounds that cause us to interact with our earthly masters in not a kind way, not a gentle way, not a peaceful way, not a loving way, not a righteous way. And as much as we walk in the newness of Christ, in His righteousness, we are also to walk in the healing of Christ. He did it. You're no longer a slave to your wounds. You're no longer a slave to your history. 
You're no longer a slave to those things that have happened in your past. You are a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. We need to realize that. We need to accept that in faith. We need to walk in that. And when it comes up, we need to rebuke that familiar spirit and say, "Uh uh-uh, not now, not ever. You don't belong here. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Again, what is Peter talking about here? To me, this is a precious verse. For once we were straying like sheep, aimlessly walking by ourselves, easily to be picked off by the enemy who roams about looking for those whom he can devour. There's nothing more vulnerable than a sheep on a plains when there's wolves about. But we responded to the shepherd's voice because we know his voice. For the sheep knows the voice of the shepherd. And we return to the caring, loving, compassionate, and gracious shepherd who are now entrusted us. And keeps us, not only on our time on this earth, but for all eternity. Remember chapter 1, he talks about the inheritance that we have received. To know that we are his and he is ours and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and that the midst of suffering at the hands of evil justice, he's fully aware, fully involved, fully engaged. As our overseer, nothing happens outside of his providence. Nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. And because of this, we can face any situation that God calls us to in his strength so that we would bring about his glory. Because he's going to give us his favor. He's going to give us the grace. He's going to give us the strength, the anointing to persevere. Why does why? Because he promised. And his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Remember that question I asked at the beginning of this sermon as it related to how you handled an unjust boss or a difficult employment situation? In light of what we just shared, did you handle it in the way of Christ? Are you handling it now in the way of Christ? It is my hope that when we do face this suffering at the hands of unjust employers or employment situations or any situation that brings suffering to you because of your faith in Christ, you will remember what God's holy word says through his servant Peter and that we are to always be conscious of God. We are to do good in suffering. We are to follow the example of Christ. We are to respond in a manner that brings glory to God. We are to remember that Christ did it and that you, all that Christ did and that you are freed from sin and you are now accountable to God the Father who gives us grace to endure.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for your word this morning. You know, sometimes, Lord, when we look at those verses, we don't really understand the depth of it, but I thank you, Father, that we were able to walk through it this morning and understand it. Father, you've told us from the very beginning we will suffer, and there's many means of suffering. There's many ways in which we could suffer. We could suffer for our faith. We could suffer for doing good. We could just suffer because, for whatever reason, evil wants to pick on us. But, Father God, we rest in the palms of your hand. And you have called us to know you and to make you known. And you've called us to glorify you. Father, when we find ourselves in that situation, or maybe we're in that situation right now, we call upon you, Heavenly Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit, to give us the power to choose the right course of action and follow your example. Because, Father, you were perfect. And you will give us strength to live this life you called us to be in. And we give you thanks Praise and glory. Amen. Please stand.